Oh, Father God, we just bless you again tonight. We praise you. We magnify your name. Thank you for your word that is unshakable. Your word that is true, that is real. Your word that can never, ever return unto you void. Your word that will accomplish the purpose for which you have sent it. And so, Lord, we embrace you tonight. We thank you for the word that has come to us all these days. And we thank you for that which you are about to do, even in the days to come. We bless and honor you. We praise your name. Thank you, Father, for your grace upon us. We honor you. We bless you. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. Amen. And welcome, everybody. Please take your seats. Amen. Uh, just as a reminder that tomorrow night is the last night for our meetings, uh, time of teaching. And as we announced on Sunday, uh, we anticipate that we want to spend a little time to pray over the things we've learned. So we had already planned to be here till 9.30 tomorrow night. However, due to inclement weather, <laughs> we are going to uh, uh, perhaps meet a little beyond that 9.30 time slot to, to get a chance to cover John chapter 16 and John chapter 17. Uh, I think uh, it would be a blessing to us to, to do that. Amen? Amen? So tonight let's just uh, stay true to our direction and go to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. And I do not know about you, but the more I read the word and the more I get time to pray about what God is sharing through the scriptures, I am more assured that Jesus is who he says he is. Amen. Absolutely. It is, it is so refreshing to see him in living colors and to see the assurance that he, in fact, is the son of God. Amen? So John chapter 18, let's move very quickly tonight. Now, remember, even at this junction, uh, all the way from the supper in John chapter 13, or from John 13 up to here, it's all straight narrative. They had supper, they washed their feet in John 13, and began to speak to them in John 14 about him going to prepare a place for them. John chapter 15, talking about the relationship between him and in, uh, between, yes, between the believers and himself, the believers and the world, John chapter 16, giving us further instructions about the Holy Spirit, John chapter 17, uh, the high priestly intercessory prayer, all of that were all part of one and same discussion leading up to this point. So, so you keep that in mind. Okay. Chapter 18, verse 1. When Jesus has spoken these words, what words? The one I just told you about from John, John chapter 13. He went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Ah. I understand this picture. So they had supper. He washes their feet. He talked to them about all the things that are about to happen and preparing them for his pending departure. All of that's, all of that's ended. He leaves the upper room. And now he's going to the garden. But the route is to the Temple Mount. Temple Mount is the place where all the Passover animals are sacrificed. 
So he walks past that place, and on his way to the garden, he's got to go through this valley. And as he goes through the valley, there's a brook there called Brook Kidron. That word Kidron means dark and murky. Now, there's a reason for which it is dark. All the animals that are sacrificed in the temple, they have a drainage through which all the blood will flow and eventually flows into this brook. So Jesus is going to the garden. Remember, he left John 17, a place of prayer. He's going to the garden, another place of praying. Why is he going from prayer to prayer? He's acutely aware of the mission ahead of him. And he knows that in order for him to do what he's about to do, he needed a reinforcement by the power of the Spirit to get him ready. So now as he chooses, as he's walking down now, he's looking at this brook and he's seeing the blood and the water from the animals that have been sacrificed. Ah, and I'm sure he's thinking. Centuries back, 2 Samuel chapter 15, another son of God, David, who as a result of rebellion in Jerusalem, and as a result of rejection in Jerusalem, was fleeing from the throne as his son Absalom was usurping the throne from him. David, hundreds of years before Jesus, crossed that same brook. Rebellion chased him out. Rejection chased him out. So Jesus must have rewound and remember, oh wow, yes, okay, David went through this. So in one sense, he rewinds to recollect what happened with David. And on the other hand, he fast forwards. Because moments from now, he will be rejected. And the leaders of the Israelites will be in rebellion. And his blood will flow in that same brook. Just as those animals that have just been sacrificed. And yet, he set his face on the mission. So it is with this thought, we are told he went through the brook of Kidron and then enters the garden. Ah, this garden reminds us of the first garden for the first Adam. That was Garden of Eden, where the first Adam, as a consequence and a result of sin, hid from God. Now, this last Adam, in order to be a propitiation for sin, enters the presence of God. The first Adam, as a result of rebellion, was chased out of the garden. This last Adam, as a result of his submission to his father, enters into the garden. In this same garden, yes, under the auspices of the first Adam, as a result and consequence of sin, after man was driven out of that garden, we are told the angel of God had a flaming sword that guarded the entry to the garden. Get some money. Peter pulls off his sword, cuts off the ear of the uh, servant of the, uh, of the priest, and Jesus cautioned him to put that sword back. So in the Garden of Eden, the sword was brought out. In the Garden of Gethsemane, it was put back in its position. This is the background for what's about to happen in John chapter 18. Okay? Now, 
let me just read a few more. In a few more verses. And Judas, verse 2 now, who betrayed him, also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. Don't let Judas deceive you. Judas is aware of all the Christian songs. He's aware of all the Christian habits. He speaks Christianese. He understands the language. He says, Judas, how are you doing? I'm blessed. They have all of the language that makes him look like a believer, and it's not. But not only that, he knows where Jesus frequents. Okay? So, we are told now, then Judas, having received a detachment of troops, an officer from the chief priests and Pharisees came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Ah, interesting. A detachment of troops based on that time is about 600 men. 600 men came into this garden to arrest one person. That's not the only thing we are told. We are told they brought lanterns, weapons, okay, and what? And torches. Ah, that is very important. I shouldn't have forgotten that. Now, mind you, at this time, at the Passover in Israel, it was full moon, which means at that particular time of the day, there should have been enough light to where you didn't need any lights. Except that these people who have been charged with the responsibility to come and fetch Jesus, they did not expect to find him the way they found him. They had anticipated that perhaps Jesus will be hiding among the trees, among the brushes, and therefore they brought torches and lanterns because they were looking to start searching for him under the trees. That was their anticipation. And think about it. How many men or women, for that matter, we know in history, who knows that they're about to be arrested and wait for the arrest? Particularly when the offense was deemed punishable by capital punishment. They always flee. They always resist. Or sometimes they fight. I am sure Jesus was acutely aware of the first mediator of the first covenant, Moses, who after killing the Egyptian in Egypt, Pharaoh got to know about it. He didn't wait around to be arrested. He picked grace. He ran. In a contemporary world, I'm sure we are reminded of Saddam Hussein when he was found. This man who had created Harvard and made all this noise, mother of all wars, and so forth and so on, he was found in a hole in the ground. Sent his own men out there to die, but he was hiding. About Osama. Guy was chilling out in Pakistan and sending folks out to die every day. So what I'm saying to you is, you need to begin to appreciate that not only did Jesus understand his mission, he was really prepared to face it. So they came with staffs, I mean, torches and lanterns and weapons, 600 of them, plus special officers from the priests, and they came in there. Now, let's, let's read. Let's read what happens. Let's read forward. Uh, verse 4. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that will come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? I can only imagine the surprise for these people. They are, they, their anticipation when they came in was that they would find Jesus hiding. But rather than him hiding, he was proactive. He met them. Who are you looking for? There are so many things I want us to see in these next few verses. Number one, the courage of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that that same courage that was upon him, 
That same spirit that gave him the courage to face the challenge of his mission. That that same spirit will enable us, empower us, that we will not shy away from the responsibility that God has given us. Because if God told us to do it, he will sustain us in it. So he was courageous. He went to them. Whom do you seek? And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, nothing I don't want us to miss is the fact that if Jesus made the kind of noise we make today, it should have been very easy for them to identify him. But they had to ask, whom do you seek? And he responded, I mean, they responded rather, Jesus of Nazareth. And then the Bible says, Jesus said to them, I am he. Now, some translation said, he just said, I am. We are not certain about that, but the point here is, he identified himself, said, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now, when he said to them, I am he, verse 6, they drew back and fell to the ground. So, number one, we see the courage. Number two here, we see the authority that he carries. All he had to do is just say, I am he. Think about this. Benny Hinn would do anything to get his power. Because 600 men at one time all fell to the ground. And he didn't have to touch them. He didn't pray for them. He didn't do anything. He just said, I am he. And upon hearing, upon the hearing of those words, something happened to those guys. They all just were slain in the spirit. Now, if the words of Jesus can get a detachment of troops to back off and fall, what do you think those words will do for you when you activate those words with the power of the Holy Spirit? Because God is no respecter of person. It's just a respecter of faith. Amen? Amen? Verse 7, then he asked them again, whom are you seeking? So obviously after they, after they woke up from their being groggy and say, wait, what happened to us? They finally got back on their feet and said, okay, wait, uh, uh, what are we here for? So he asked them again. He didn't run. I asked you the first time, who are you looking for? I'm asking you again, whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, the reason these, are, these things are important for us to take note. Some of the things Jesus has told us earlier begins to make sense. He told us in John 15, John chapter 10. He said, I laid my own life down. No one takes it away from me. You are seeing it here. Because if it was possible for them to take his life, it would have happened. Not only that, if when they fell down, Jesus wanted to run away, he could have done it away. No, he didn't. He stood still, challenged them, spoke to them. He knew that all of that time, he was absolutely, completely in control. They were not in control. They were fulfilling scriptures. He wrote the scriptures. So the point here is, what is it that is happening in your life and my life that we think is out of control? When we are in the hands of him who not only created the entire universe, but who gave the world. So he was courageous, he was in authority, and we see here he laid his own life down. So verse 8 now, Jesus answered, I have told you, I am he, therefore, if you seek me, let this go their way. Oh my God. What a shepherd. What a good shepherd. What a great shepherd. Here in the moment of his agony, when his own very life was being threatened, 
He had an ever-present mind of presence, recognizing his disciples were with him, and if they came just for him, why put those guys in danger? So his immediate response to those guys, it's me you're looking for, take me, but leave them alone. That's the kind of God you have. Oh, Jesus. What a comfort. To know that in spite of, no matter what's happening, wherever in your consciousness, wherever in your, hand, in your mind. Folks, these things should encourage us to know our God is in control all of the time and is looking out for you. Let him go, he says. I'm the one you're looking for. Here I am. I'm not running. Why? I don't need to run. Even you guys that came for me, I'm in control of your life. You just don't know it. Oh, hallelujah. So when the Bible tells me and you to cast our cares upon him, it means what he's saying. He knows what he's saying. Okay? Now, look at what it says. Verse 9. Let this go their way, that the same might be fulfilled which he spoke. Of those whom you give me, I have lost none. So we see here the protective custody of God. Jesus said very clearly, see, let them go. Because the word must be fulfilled. Of everyone you've given me, I've not lost any of them. I didn't lose them before now. I'm not going to lose them today. I will not lose them in the future. You give them to me, I'll keep them and deliver them. Safe custody. Verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. The servant's name was Malachi. Ah, isn't it amazing that even at this junction in Jesus' life, his enemy, those that came to arrest him, Peter reacted in a way he shouldn't have, cut the ear off. Look at Jesus' response. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? So we see here Jesus' focus on obedience. He was not shying away from what's happening with him. Now, let, let me explain something because, uh, is it here? Okay, let me explain this because on the other accounts we read it. We read about how Jesus is in the garden and we know the, uh, the statement he made about, Father, is it possible for this cup to pass over me? I said, nevertheless, not my will, but that will be done. I think it's important for us to address that. No one more than Jesus understands the implication of sin. When he was making that statement, when he was praying that prayer, he wasn't saying it from the perspective of, I'm afraid, I'll go to the cross and die, I will not get up. No. Are you, are you hearing what I'm saying? The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, for God made him to be sin, him that knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Or that translation say, for God made him to be a sin offering, him that knew no sin, that we can become the righteousness of God in him. What's the implication? Jesus knew very well the kind of fellowship and communion he had enjoyed with his father. I can of my own self do nothing. As what I see, I do. I make no judgments of my own. On and on and on and on, it tells us about how he's so closely in, uh, uh, intimate with his father. So now he's looking at the cross where my sin and your sin will be placed upon him. And from what we read in Isaiah 53, 
He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the price of the chastisement for our peace was placed upon him. And by his stripes we were healed. So he understood very clearly that in that moment, the guilt that was due me, the shame that was due me, will be placed upon him. Not because he's deserving of, of guilt or deserving of shame. He was aware that through that guilt and shame that will bear for us, he will have to be estranged from his father. He, he, he understood very clearly, as we discussed last Sunday morning, what sin does. While God remains constant and the same, we are not. Sin changes us. It moves me away from my position with the Father, away from him, until I get it right. So Jesus was acutely aware of that. That is, that is a territory he's never been in. Because even though he's been tempted, like as we are, the Bible is very clear in Hebrews chapter 4, yet without sin. So he has never known the separation that's about to come upon him. So for you and I, we can't fathom it. Because we've lived in sin all of our lives. You have no idea what this means. Really, I don't even know if we can comprehend it, to be honest. In fairness to all of us. But for a person who per second, per second, every living moment, every living minute, he was in fellowship and communion with his father, back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, and he knew what sin does. There's a separation. This was huge. Amen? So, having said that, even in this hour of, of trial for him, isn't it amazing that Jesus Christ still had enough compassion to put the ear back on the priest, on the priest's servants? The last miracle before the cross. If it was you and I, <laughs> we may tell Peter to cut the other one off. Make a good lesson of this, out of this guy. Cut the other one, or whatever the case may be. Not Jesus. Now, I'm saying this so you know how constant he is. Oh, I don't think you heard what I said. To show us how constant love is. That love is not moved by the evil intent of those men that came to arrest him. In spite of the fact that they are tossed towards him by evil, he still healed the man. (laughs) Oh, hallelujah. Now you can begin to appreciate what Paul was saying about what can separate us from the love of God. Let's move on. Verse 12. Then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Let's ask this question. What chain or shackle could have truly held Jesus bound? Think about that. The one that walks through the wall disappears. What chain could have bound him? None. So when the Bible says that it bound him, you need to understand it's not the chain that kept him bound. It's not the shackles that kept him bound. It's love. Love. Paul says the love of God constrains me, compels me. So the only thing that could have bound him here is love for his father and love for you and I. When you and I ever question God's love for us, think about the father that was bound for you. Because if he didn't remain bound, if he didn't stay bound, you and I would still be in our sin and misery right now. But the love of his mission kept him there. Verse 13. And they led them away to Anas first, for it was the father-in-law of Caiaphas who was high priest that year. Now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. 
Okay, let's, 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 let's talk about that for a minute. This is, this is interesting here to see this trinity of evil. I mean, Annas, Caiaphas, and Pilate. Annas had been a high priest for about 11 years previously, A.D. 5 to A.D. 16. And what had happened was, in old Israel, the high priests were in office until their death, and then their sons would take over. But by the time the Roman domination came, the whole system had become so corrupted that they were no longer following the dictates of the law, the old covenant, the law of Moses. The priesthood was now up for sale due to corruption and bribery. So Annas vacated the priesthood because it had more luring and more attractive incentives, i.e., remember I told you guys at the very beginning, John chapter 1 or chapter 2, that Jesus cleansed people out of the temple? Well, when you read Jewish history, the Talmud, Josephus, they'll tell you that in those temple areas, all of the bazaars where they sold the animals and doves, they were called Anas Bazaar. He, you're right, he was the godfather of all the exploitation of the things that happened in the temple. He vacated his position as high priest and said, listen, this high priest thing, you know, we, we need to get more stuff. Let, let's get our hands on some more tangible stuff, all this high priestly robe. So, so the guy, he resigned from being high priest and set up base in the temple and they were the ones that came up with all these corrupt laws that if you brought an animal outside of the temple, they make sure it fails. It will not pass inspection. <laughs> so that you'll be forced to buy the animals in the temple that was ten times as highly priced as the ones outside. Guess who's making all that money? Anas. His cousins were the inspectors, his aunties, he had them all, the whole thing was roped up. So when Jesus went to the temple and cleansed the place out, ah, you are going to mess with my business? I'm going to show you. His father-in-law, Caiaphas, was the high priest at this time. But isn't it interesting that when Jesus was arrested, the first place they took him to was Annas. He was very interested in this guy. You are the one that's messing me up? I will show you. <laughs> Annas was a very corrupted priest. Caiaphas, his father-in-law was also corrupted because now, remember what I said earlier, the priesthood now was for sale. Whoever can give more money to the Roman emperor, that's who gets the position. So you have Annas, you have Caiaphas, and then you, of course you have Pilate. Pilate had problems with Caesar. So this occasion was a very important time for him to prove his loyalty to Rome. So that even though he examined Jesus and found no reason or fault in him, they reminded him, are you a friend of Caesar? Or are you going to, what, 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 what judgment? Are... They quickly reminded him that it is politically expedient that he delivered God to them. Now, another background you need to, you need to catch. In, uh, what chapter was that? When they caught the woman in adultery, I think John chapter 5. Chapter 8? Chapter 8, I think it's chapter 8, you're right. Remember when he brought the woman that was caught in adultery to Jesus and said, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. And the love Moses says she should be stoned to death. Reading further now, I discovered why they did that. They were trying to set Jesus on a cross coalition against the Romans. Because two years before now, the Romans had passed a law that the Jews could not kill anybody else. 
they had banned capital punishment according to Jewish laws. So what's happening is, when they brought the woman to Jesus and said, our law says X, Y, Z, they wanted Jesus to pass a death sentence against the woman so they can take that to the Romans and say, Jesus ordered this woman's execution. Thereby in direct contravention of Roman law. And that, in that case, they could have just washed their hands off and said, well, we didn't do anything. You, got, you, you broke the law. Intrigues. Intrigues. Now, why did Jesus not just die in his sleep? Why could he not die in order to death? Because everything they accused him of, according to Jewish law, was punishable by death by stoning. Now, let's, let's read here. Well, let me just answer that and then we'll come on. Really. Because it will be a while before we get to that. The, the reason was because the scripture said specifically he had to be crucified. So it was important that he went through the Roman process because the Romans had crucifixion, the Jews had stoning. Okay, so the Roman process was the only way that could deliver the death punishment by crucifixion, the cross. The Jewish system could only deliver crucifixion or death by stoning. So it was of a necessity that he went through the Pilate Roman system so that the cross which was God's order, can be fulfilled. But now let's just move on here. John chapter 18, verse 15. And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door outside. Then the other disciple was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. Then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, you are not also one of these men. Oh, I'm sorry. You are not also one of these men's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers who had made a fire of coal stood there, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves. And Peter stood with them and warmed himself. The high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. Let's just stop there for a minute. At this time, all the other disciples had fled. I mean, at once Jesus said, take me, leave them alone. They didn't need a second motivation. (laughs) Those guys, out of dodge gone. Now, I'm saying this because in a moment we're going to see Peter's failure. But I want to encourage us not to label him by his failure, but the largeness of his heart. You see, he took a position. He took a position of loyalty for him to be in a place where he could even fail. Like the rest of those disciples, he could have fled. And this is important because for years, after Pentecost, after Peter went on to be a mighty man of God, in his meetings, people will make the sound of a cock crowing to tease him, to remind him who you think you are. We know your history. We know where you came from. For years after. For years. But it's important to appreciate at least the fact that even though he failed later at some point, he pursued Jesus, wanted to see the end, what the end was going to be. Okay? Let me just fast forward so we can, so we can close our goal. Peter and this way I'm going to close so we can. He had said to Jesus, when Jesus told him he was going to be crucified, he said, it will never happen. That I will die with you. And I'm saying that to remind me and you. We must be careful not to think the arm of our flesh will prevail. Peter, in his sincerity, said, Jesus, I mean, it's not going to happen. Before that happens, I'm going to die with you. And I'm sure when he was saying it, he was sincere. I don't think he was being insincere. But he had no idea what was about to happen. So I'm saying to you and I, at best, we should always humble ourselves. Yes, sir. 
At best, we must decrease so it can increase. At best, we must understand that no matter how good, how great, how much knowledge we have, we have absolutely nothing except God gives it to you. Peter did not understand that. And because of what God was going to use him to do, he needed for him to go through that process. So Jesus said to him, Peter, are you sure you can do this? He said, oh, no problem. I got it covered. Oh, before the cock crows, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Three times. Do you know this? No, I don't. Are you sure we didn't say, no, I'm not. And by the third time, here comes the cock. Kukuruku! What? And the Bible said, Jesus turned around and made eye contact with him, wept bitterly. Oh my goodness, it's come to pass. I want to leave us with this parting words. Peter seemingly failed in the hour of great trial. But I want you to know that God, even in all of that, orchestrated Peter's restoration. Many of us that came out of uh, maybe lived in the country, let me put it like that. You understand that roosters and cocks don't crow in the daytime. Usually it's in the dawning of a new day. And in this particular setting, because of the Passover, the Jews made sure there are no cocks around because of the droppings they leave on the ground. Because of Passover, to clean that up is work. You violate the Sabbath. So they made sure you can't get any rooster or cock at all around anywhere. So how did God get one in there? Not only did he get it there, he served a purpose that sends a message to you and I today. Because the purpose there is, Peter, you've messed up. But in your mess, there's a dawning of a new day. Because just as a cock is crowing, signaling the new day, even you, Peter, I want to assure you, you will not be labeled by what's happened to you. And the message for us tonight is, no matter how badly you're falling, no matter how terribly you think you failed God, just as Jesus made the eye contact with Peter to give him an assurance, Peter, I know you are broken. I know you are disappointed in yourself. I know you feel bad about what's happened. Did you not hear the crowing of that cock? It's a new day, Peter. Pick yourself up from the floor. God has work for you to do. God has a plan for you. God is not leaving you alone. God is not forgetting you where you are. He will lift you up. He will crown your head, plant your feet on solid ground. You have just, your future has just begun. It's not ended. And that's the message for us tonight. Your future has just begun. Whatever the enemy wants to label you with is a past tense. Your future is bright in the Lord Jesus Christ. The cock in your day is crowing and God is saying you have a brand new start. Oh my God. Ladies and gentlemen, I cannot do anything about my past. I cannot go to my past and redo my past. But I have a great future ahead of me. I'm going to seize the moment. I'm going to seize the opportunity. I'm going to trust God. I'm going to believe God. I'm going to count on God. The one that's the day star. The bright and morning star. The Jehovah Almighty. The Jehovah El Shaddai. He started a new day. And you and I are a part of that new day. That's what he said to us. Don't let the devil label you by your past. That's the message to Peter. But I thank God today that you and I can look back and see it's not, it was not just a message. It's a reality. Because yes, yes. that same Peter 
who betrayed him in that hour was the one to give the key to open the church up. Preach the first message in the new church of the Lord Jesus Christ and bring the people into a place. If God did that for Peter, what will he do for you? What will he do for you? God is not placing a limitation on us because he's counting on himself on the inside of you to get the job done. And getting it done, we will. In the name of Jesus. It's not by might, not by power, but by his spirit, says the Lord. Is the spirit of God that's working in us, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Hallelujah! The cock is crowing. Can you just stand up tonight and make that rooster sound? Remind all of those that's looking for your demise that it's a new day. I don't know about you guys. I'm ready. Kukuruku! Kukuruku! <laughs> it's a new day. It's a new day. A day of acceleration. A day of elevation. A day of blessings. A day of favor. A day of showing God's power. A day of his presence. Hallelujah. Amen. And amen. amen. Glory be to God. So, Father, we want to thank you tonight that you have begun a good work in us. You are not finished with us. You are not displeased with us. Thank you for your pleasure because you've made us to be your delight, the apple of your own eyes. And so, Lord, we are trusting in your unfailing love even right now in the name of Jesus. Thank you for the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Guide us Teach us, lead us. We surrender and yield ourselves to you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that a new day has dawned upon us. We seize the moment. We glorify your name and we give you thanks for it in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. God bless you. Amen.